June 6, 1944, was the decisive turning point in World War II. This is the Battle of Normandy, otherwise known as D-Day. I found out this week, I was curious, what does the D in D-Day stand for? And it stands for day. So it means day, day. There you go. Trivia this morning for you. D-Day, June 6, 1944. The Allied forces come together with a brilliant strategic plan to storm the beach at Normandy and also come in through land and, and the sky and the sea to surround the Nazi and fascist forces and begin the push back into Europe. And if the Allied forces won this battle, it would be the turning point in the war. Everything would be different as a result of this one battle. But it didn't end the war. The war still raged throughout Europe until the E-Day. In May 1945, victory in Europe Day, and, and then you could even argue that it extended on past that into September with the surrender of the Japanese military. But the point is, there is a decisive battle that has been won. And everything that happens after that moment is shaped by the future hope that the war will one day be over and that there will be once more peace on earth. Taking this same imagery and writing during World War II, the theologian and author C.S. Lewis writes this, Christianity asserts that this universe is at war. But it does not think that this is a war between independent powers like World War II. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebels. Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That is what Easter is all about. That we are stepping into this great battle of waging peace, not war. That this world that God so loved, that God would be willing to give God's own life to save and rescue and redeem this world from enemy-occupied territory. On the cross, Jesus won the decisive battle against sin and evil and death. But as we are well aware, the war has not ended. Death is still afoot. And 
spoiler alert, it's coming for every single one of us. But all of this raises the question, especially in the light of the reality of death that many of us are understandably asking this morning. And the question is this, isn't resurrection, the idea of a dead person coming back from the dead to renewed and restored life, isn't that merely a myth or simply a metaphor? Isn't that something that we just kind of look at and read into things from the desires of our own hearts when we, when we look at things like spring that comes after the deadness of winter? Isn't it just a metaphor? Or isn't it just some sort of myth? There were all sorts of myths in the ancient world about gods and godlike figures dying and being restored to life in some form or fashion. But haven't we grown out of that by now? We know in our time and day that dead people stay dead. Isn't resurrection merely a myth or a metaphor? So in order to explore this question further, we're going to look at a story in light of the story that has just been read, of the first preacher to the apostles, Mary, encountering the resurrected Jesus. But then a few days and weeks and months later, we're going to zoom in on another story. And this story is from the Acts of the Apostles. And just to clarify, Acts is A-C-T-S, like activities or actions, not like acts like horror movies. Acts of the Apostles. And it's one of Jesus' first, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples, a man named Peter, who, leading up to Jesus' death, actually ended up denying and distancing himself from Jesus so that he wouldn't be too closely associated with him, which is an understandable move that many of us have made because of the actions and activities of the church itself historically. However, the reality and the goodness of the love of Jesus drew him back in. And this is a story of, it's kind of a wild story when we look at the whole context, but this is a story of Peter being sent to a Roman military officer named Cornelius to tell him about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so we read this in Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 33, 34 through 43. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear God and do what is right, implying Cornelius and his family. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The first word of this campaign of sabotage against the, the forces of evil in the world and 
the first recipient of this good news in this story is somebody who is outside of the family of God. And Peter's first words of in, in this story to this person are, you are accepted and God has waged peace on your behalf. This is so often so different from the way that many stories of what the Jesus story means for you begin. The first word is not that you are despicable and judged, but that you are accepted and loved by the God who has waged peace on your behalf so that God can be with you and you can be with God. He continues. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed or, or chose, selected Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We, meaning he and the twelve and many others, are, were witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They, meaning the religious establishment, in collusion with the Roman political machine, killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree, which is a reference to the cross. But God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead, meaning that Jesus himself has authority over death. All the prophets, meaning the whole of the Bible before the, the biographies of Jesus' life that we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, testify about Jesus, and everyone who believes in him or trusts in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus, through Peter, tells his story to Cornelius, this Roman military officer who at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, we're told, is a God-fearer, which means he's a Gentile, not a Jewish believer in God, who was uncircumcised and did not choose to that, path, that course of action to become a, a follower of God, but rather was somebody who did good. He was well-respected in his community, and he was generous to the poor and disenfranchised. And he was well-respected by people in the area in which he came from. And, and this story begins with this, this Cornelius at prayer, which we're told that he did constantly. He was constantly praying in communication with God. And he has visions where God says, hey, there's this, this dude named Peter. He's going to come tell you about Jesus. And so he sends two of his soldiers and they go find Peter, who simultaneously is having a, a, a different sort of vision, which is totally trippy. You can read it on your own, and, and we'll explain it later. But he has this other vision where essentially he's told, hey, this dude Cornelius is looking for you. Go and tell him about Jesus. Go and tell him this story about his life and his death and his resurrection. 
And so that's where we get to here. But it's this shocking moment because for the first time in the history of the Jesus movement, the Jesus movement here represented by Peter steps across their perception of enemy lines and goes right before this, Peter says, I have never been into the home or had fellowship with a Gentile before. I have never done anything like this. And so he goes in, he steps across the threshold, and he tells them, he tells him this story. But what's curious about this particular telling of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is Peter, among other things, is attempting to tell Cornelius, I saw it with my own eyes. The whole thing. And so among other things, what this story means is that the the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is historically reliable. There are mountains of evidence that this event, the, the, the events of Jesus' life, and particularly his raising from the dead, actually happened in real history. It's not just a myth, and it's not just a metaphor, and it's one of the key pieces of evidence is that it began to reshape and reconfigure social relationships like those between a Jew and a Gentile in the ancient world. And that these relationships, which were once marked by, by, by suspicion and hostility, begin to be switched and reconfigured around hospitality and generosity and love. These two, peop- these two groups of people who were polar opposites were now being drawn into one new family under Jesus. And so Peter is saying, this is real. You can trust it. This actually happened. This is a reliable historical moment that you can trust, that can change everything about how you live and who you interact with. But it raises another question, which is, so what? So what? Who cares? Who cares that an event in history can be verified? I mean, we can verify that Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BCE, but it doesn't make any difference on my life. Maybe in some diluted sense of it set the chart of Western culture and whatever, but it doesn't really impact what I'm going to do as soon as I walk out of this sanctuary later today. It doesn't shape or change who I'm going to interact with or why. It doesn't really matter if something happened historically unless it means something profoundly tangible in the present moment. And what the resurrection of Jesus means, what the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus means for you and for me is simply put, that you are spiritually dead, that you are psychologically defeated, and that you are physically dying. These 
really hard to stomach truths sit as the backdrop of what this historical event means. That the story of the scriptures, that the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means is that our greatest enemy is death. The pastor and theologian Tim Keller puts it this way. Death is the great interruption, tearing loved ones away from us, or us from them. Some of us are feeling that reality acutely this morning. Death is the great schism, ripping apart the material and immaterial parts of our being and sundering a whole person who was never meant to be disembodied, even for a moment. Death is the great insult because it reminds us, as Shakespeare said, that we are worm food. Death is hideous and frightening and cruel and unusual. It is not the way life is supposed to be, and our grief in the face of death acknowledges that. Death is our great enemy, more than anything, and I would add, more than anyone. It makes a claim on each and every one of us, pursuing us relentlessly throughout all our days. What Keller and Peter and others are trying to get us to see is that the reality of our lives are lived in separation from the life that God intended for us to live. And the, the news that Peter is announcing is that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus has established peace. And he uses a particular word for peace in this story, a Greek word that is always the translation or the word that gets used for the translation of a Hebrew word, shalom, which means peace, certainly, but it, it has a bigger range of meaning than just peace as in the absence of conflict. What it means and what it's inviting us into is to see this whole beautiful picture of life lived in wholeness and vitality and in right relationship with God, in right relationship with ourselves, in right relationship with one another, and with, it, with right relationship with all of creation, the world, the earth itself. It's this idea of harmony and holism and all of the pieces fitting together and everything Everyone having everything that they need and all relationships being marked by joy and generosity. And what has happened is humanity was, was brought into existence to enjoy this gift of shalom, of peace. But the first humans rejected this gift of grace. And they were told that the consequence of this would be to basically pull the plug from the source. And that ultimately, life would digress into death. But ever since then, what humans have attempted to do is to fight back against 
death, to say, no, 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 that's not really true. This was the original lie that God's adversary, the Satan, said, hey, 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 if you, if you walk away from God, you're not really going to die. And so we've been trying to push back on this, and there are two primary strategies for doing this. And the first one is, is quite simply living, we attempt, human, humanity attempts life lived without God, without any reference, any connection, any relationship to the God that is revealed in Jesus and through the scriptures, we, we, we simply say, no, 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 that's not for me. I don't need any of that. Maybe that was for people a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But we have, I don't know, iPhones now. We don't really need a relationship with God when we have DoorDash and Amazon Prime. We don't need any of that anymore. And so we attempt to live life without God. Maybe we pursue career or relationships, or technology, or, or parenting, or some other thing will come into the place that we will attempt to replace God with, always and inevitably. But the reality is that even with all of those strategies, they terminate in death. You can take none of it with you. And so there, there's another strategy. In, in light of the fact that we will die, we, uh, we attempt life lived for God. And on the surface, this sounds right and good. We live the right sort of way. We get the right sort of ideas about God in our minds and in our hearts. And we believe that if we just simply live good, moral, ethical, upright lives, that eventually when we do die, God who is the judge of the living and the dead, will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and then we will actually not die, but we will live on forever in, in, in some way that we don't know quite yet how it works. But we think if we live for God, then God will give us what we actually want. And both of these strategies end up failing because they actually both reject relationship with God out of a desire to get the things of God without being in relationship with God. Both of these are ultimately like the, the story or the myth of Sisyphus. It's a, it's a Greek myth about a king who attempted to play a trick on death so as to avoid it. And death in, in, in Greek mythology is Hades, and, and Hades finds out about this trick that Sisyphus plays on him, and then he condemns Sisyphus to an eternity of pushing a massive boulder up a massive hill only to get to the top of this hill and have that boulder roll back down. Both strategies of living without God and living for God are attempts to push the boulder up the hill only to have it come crashing down at the end of our life. There are endless variations and versions of the ways that we try and do this. But there is another way. There is another way. And that is a life lived with God. And this is the way that Jesus shows us, Jesus reveals to us, that we can live a life with God even in the face of and in the fear of death. Jesus, in his life, lived in such grateful trust of who God is and what God has said 
that even in the face of death, Jesus never attempted to live without God or tried to get the things of God out of God, but simply in an open-handed trust in relationship, lived his life with God even to the point of death. And in Jesus' death, God's power and love for him was realized and it brought him back to life, which means that the thing we most fear in life, which is death, is not actually the end of the story. It is not actually the true and real end of the story, that there is more even after we cross through this mysterious threshold that we don't know how it's going to lead. Jesus is proof positive in history that death is not the end for those who live a life with God. Jesus' death means that Jesus defeats the power and the fear of death by dying. And that by being raised to new life, There is new possibilities for you and I, though we are spiritually dead and psychologically defeated and physically dying, to step into renewed life here and now, life lived without the fear of death. A life that takes death incredibly seriously, that weeps with those that weep, that mourns with those that mourn, that is not disillusioned by death, but simply says, God, I trust you even in the face of death. And what that does is, again, it pulls the plug out of the socket of the power of death. And death lived in the reality of a life lived with God has no power, no force, no control, no fear over you. And what does this mean? Well, in the eternal words of the brilliant and faithful hobbit, Samwise Gamgee. He says, Gandalf, the end of the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What happened to the world? My sisters and brothers, the good news of Jesus Christ to you and me this morning is that in the end, whatever the end holds for you, everything sad is going to come untrue. And I don't know exactly what that means or exactly what that looks like, but the way that this sadness will come untrue will also acknowledge the truth of the brokenness that you carry and bear in your life. And so what does this mean? It means that you and I can live by dying. Out of the fear of death, we are afraid of surrendering, of coalescing or, 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 or pushing back or, or letting go of the things in our life that call out to us to surrender them. Control, power, relationship, money, whatever it is, 
we can surrender those things trusting that those things, A, are not God, and that B, that God will walk with us even in and through the pain and suffering that surrendering those death experiences in our, in our life might hold for us. And, and an, an, another way to think about it is uh, the theologian Elizabeth Elliot once wrote this, that whenever two wills cross, which meaning our will and God's will, somebody has to die. Life requires countless little deaths, occasions where we are given the chance to say no to self and yes to God. She continues, we are not meant to die merely in order to be dead. This is not the point. God would not want that, but we die in order to live. We surrender, we sacrifice, we're generous, we're hopeful because we know that this is the way to true and eternal life. Life that the power of which begins now but continues on forever. But how do we do this? How do we live by dying? This is not something that in, in some way is added on to the reality of our life. Like we have to try harder now to do the same things. This is a reality that is given to us by grace, by the goodness of a good and gift-giving God as a gift to step into the fullness of who we've been created to be. And there's uh, an illustration that I think I find personally helpful from Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And in this story, one of the main characters is named Sidney Carton. And he's a, he's a lawyer, but he's, he's sort of cynical and depressed and drunk. And he falls in love with a woman named Lucy Manet. And he longs to be with her. The, her goodness and her radiance brings out of him a desire to be a better person, but because he's kind of a loser in her eyes, she rejects him and, and pushes him away and chooses uh, another man named Charles Darnay. And the book kind of follows their stories, but at the end, Charles Darnay is convicted of a crime in revolutionary France, and he's sentenced to death by the guillotine. And at the last possible minute, out of his love and care and devotion for Lucy, Sidney Carton, who knows that he will never be able to live with her, wants and desires her happiness. And so he comes and he switches places with Charles Darnay, and he releases him back to his beloved. And Sidney Carton goes to the guillotine in his place. And on the way, there's this young seamstress who has seen this whole thing play out. The wonder of this love that has taken the place of another in death. And she says simply, can I hold your hand? Can I hold your hand? And so they hold hands all the way 
to the guillotine. And she, the seamstress, is able to face her own unjust death because of the power of self-sacrificial love. And my beloved sisters and brothers, this is the same way that you and I are invited to live. Jesus has taken our place in death so that we can live a life that we were created to live. And in the mystery of the Spirit, according to this illustration and this story, the way that we surrender in our life and in our death is by holding on to the hand of Jesus, whose love gives us the power to face any and everything. So how do we live this out? I have three questions for you to consider about what this might mean in terms of next steps for your life. The first is, do you know what the story of Jesus means for you? Like Cornelius, are you asking questions? Are you clarifying? Do you know the power that this story has for you? This is a community where we value questions and the people who ask them. Second, have you been baptized? This story ends with Cornelius and his whole family being baptized into the way of Jesus, which is a symbolic ritual act of death and being raised to new life. And so if you know what Jesus, the story of Jesus' life means for you, the next step is to be baptized. And we're going to have a baptism class here in a few weeks. And on Pentecost Sunday, which is 50 days from now, we will be baptizing people right here and now to demonstrate to the world that this fact is, this, this love is real. Then finally, if you've done these first two things, like Peter moving to Cornelius, has your trust in Jesus led you to people who are dead to you? Has your trust in Jesus led you in some way to people who are different, other from you? Because that is the power of resurrection that we are invited to practice here and now. Amen.